This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. When we think of the distinct claims, dependence, developmental modulation, promise, and innocence, those are the main components that drive a public understanding of our current conception of childhood. The reality, of course, is this. Many of you have met Omran Daknish through this photograph. Omran was a child pulled out of the rubble in Aleppo, Syria, after bombardment by Russian and Syrian jets. And this photograph went viral because of its compelling imagery and how it challenges the four distinct claims that I just went through before, particularly innocence. Now, the thing to remember about Omran Daknish, this is a tragic occurrence, tragic photograph, but it's not unique. On the same day that this photograph was taken, there were 12 other children his age pulled out of the same rubble, taken to the same emergency room. That this photograph captures not something unusual or unique, but something that had become routine. And what I'm going to discuss is the reality that this photograph represents. And this is what kids like Omran were confronting on a daily basis for more than seven years. And the implications of how do we protect and how do we respond to this kind of assault will be my conversation for the next um, half hour or so. We also have a special focus on the particular vulnerabilities and strengths of children uh, with disabilities caught up in violent conflict. And to begin, let's recognize that children caught up in armed conflict is not unusual. These are countries, different levels of armed violence as of a few weeks ago. It's not unusual that about a quarter of the world's children are living in places in armed conflict. This is common. And our work um, at Stanford, here at UCSF, with colleagues around the world, is trying to address the implications, both protective implications as well as response implications of this fact. The other thing to remember is that most of our protections for civilians, particularly for children, were built after World War II. The Geneva Conventions, uh, particularly most international humanitarian law, came about after World War II. Interstate wars, France fighting Germany, US fighting Japan. But if you look at where violent conflict is taking place now, in the world, it's totally dominated 
by intrastate, what many would call civil wars. And most of these wars are protracted. They're not two, three, four-year wars, which is long enough, of course, but some can go on for decades, like in the eastern Congo, in the north and south, Kivu. And even in Syria and Iraq now, the war is decade-long, Afghanistan approaching several decades. That these are protracted civil wars that we are talking about. And one, particularly, um, that I will use as a case, uh, is the battle that took place in northern Iraq in the city of Mosul. It's Iraq's second largest city. It was taken over by ISIS in 2014. And the battle for Mosul was the Iraqi security forces with U.S. coalition backing, taking Mosul back in the fall of 2016-2017. This is Mosul before the battle. This is Mosul after the battle. There's virtually complete destruction. And it took not several months, which was expected. It took nine months. And we were part of a, a small team that were tasked with evaluating the international response to this, civilian casualties which had become extremely controversial um, for several different reasons. Uh, but our job was basically to see how, in fact, civilians were cared for, protected during this battle that lasted more than nine months and basically destroyed the whole city. We were looking at how Groups not only in Mosul but are in the theater, including Syria, like here the White Helmets, responded to civilian casualties and particularly for me as a pediatrician, responded to the needs of children. Now when we think about the impact of war on, on human beings, but particularly on children, the first thing to recognize is that there's a category of effects that we would call direct effects. They are exposure to bullets and bombs. It's primarily trauma. And mortality is the crucial impact. But there's also morbidity. And the human toll in terms of morbidity from direct exposure to bombs and bullets to combat operations is usually between five and ten times greater than the mortality. So if we know that 100 people died, we can expect that the disabilities and the ongoing morbidity associated with being exposed to those battles is between five and ten times greater. And I'm going to show you this little guy who I met in Mosul about a month after the fighting had died down. And he was a, a little guy who had his foot amputated um, because he was exposed to an explosive a device that was um, triggered uh, by uh, ISIS. And the thing 
that is particularly compelling about this child uh, was not only that he was badly injured, but it also reflected something about the changing nature of warfare and the changing nature of combatants that is important to address, to confront, as we think about children in war now. And that is that this little guy's mother and father were both ISIS suicide bombers. He was orphaned because both parents had triggered suicide vests as they approached uh, Iraqi security forces on the front line. This is dynamic, and the challenges to children are dynamic as well. The also important mental health implications of this exposure to such violence. We did a study uh, in Bosnia uh, during the Yugoslavian, uh, during the Bosnian fighting. This was in a camp. Most of the children that we interviewed were in the camp for less than six months. But the experience that they had, which is mimicked in Iraq and Syria and many of the other places that I'll discuss, is profound. That separation, death in the family, witnessing violence to a family member was pretty close to universal. And we had a bunch of different outcomes that we looked at, but virtually all the kids had had deep emotional trauma. And we don't know what happened to them subsequent to our study because the camp was, uh, the camp members were dispersed soon after our interviews. But the expectation is that this kind of morbidity continued for years to come. But in addition to the direct effects of being exposed to bombs and bullets are the indirect effects. And the indirect effects are come not because they were maimed or injured or killed by exploding ordnance or by bullets. It's because they have been affected by the destruction of the essentials of life. What happened to food supplies? What happened to shelter? What happened to water supplies in the face of conflict? And displacement becomes dramatic in these kinds of scenarios. And most displaced people in war, children in war, are what we call IDPs, internally displaced persons. They're not refugees. They do not cross borders. They are someplace else in their home country, but seeking shelter someplace else. And the displacement coming out of the Middle East, Central Africa, Myanmar, now Latin America, uh, can be dramatic. There's also destruction of healthcare infrastructure. And these are photographs taken of direct hits, targeted hits against health infrastructure in uh, different areas of the world. Here in the Middle East, this is an MSF, Doctors Without Borders, uh, facility that was hit by Syrian uh, bombs uh, several times in Syria. 
And this is very recent. This is just a few weeks ago. This is in North Kivu. This is one of the Ebola treatment centers because we have a, uh, an outbreak of Ebola in a war zone in North Kivu in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But because of the complexity of the political situation, the changing nature of militias uh, uh, aligning with the government, with the UN peacekeepers, or with other militias, unknown assailants came in and burned down the MSF Ebola facility uh, in North Kivu just recently. And MSF had to shut down its Ebola activities in the area, despite the fact that the Ebola epidemic continues to grow. Also, the social fabric of community life evaporates. And that social fabric is critical to the protection of children. And one manifestation, a deeply tragic manifestation, is rape. More and more information is coming out that victims of sexual assault in these situations, the assailants are not only roving militias or armies that are coming through, but in fact, are, the assailants are people that the victims know. That the breakdown of community relations, community protections, when people are displaced, when people become, uh, uh, when they begin to flee violent assault, those protections of community life begin to break down and the prohibitions to things like rape by people who victims know begin to evaporate and you get situations like we've had in the Kivus for the last 20 years. And when I was in North Kivu, I saw this poster and found it particularly compelling uh, in recognizing by local people uh, what the challenge of sexual assault in the area continues to be. And if you look at the statistics, and this is from uh, some tabulations that we did, of looking at direct bombs and bullet mortality and mortality from the indirect effects, the destruction of the essentials of life in different conflicts, we began to compare, and what you can see is that in most of these major conflicts, indirect effects are much larger than the direct effects. That the long-term implications, particularly for children, of destroying the essentials of life becomes more dramatic than the direct effects. Now, what does that look like? Well, this is a study that was done in Darfur in um, Western Sudan. At the height of the fighting, they looked at mortality. And there was, of course, excess mortality. But the vast majority of that excess mortality was not due to violence, directly speaking. It was the indirect effect that was most dramatic. It was the indirect effects that were predominant. Same thing in the Eastern Congo, and this is for little kids, less than five. And you could see what the causal pattern, the causal epidemiology of young child mortality was. Now, the mortality was elevated, but 
for people who do global child health, you'll recognize is this is exactly the same distribution of causes as you get in global settings all over the world. It's just that the absolute rates were elevated, that the indirect effects take on the form that always are threatening kids in these situations. This is what it looks like. This is an indirect effect. This is malnutrition. This is malaria. This is starvation. This is cholera. And the thing to remember about all of these causes of death is that 75% of all of these deaths are preventable with interventions that we have right now. We don't need to come up, UCSF, Stanford, doesn't need to come up with any brilliant new interventions. With interventions we have now, we could prevent 75% of the indirect deaths associated with conflict around the world. And if you look at something like neonatal mortality, and you just list the country with the highest neonatal mortality in the world, and then you just keep going down, the top 20, they're all countries in conflict. It's important to recognize that global child health is increasingly becoming global child health in conflict because so much of the residual child mortality is now occurring in places at war. I'm going to describe one case that we've been examining in detail uh, over the last uh, several months, and that is the cholera epidemic in Yemen. This cholera epidemic is the largest epidemic of cholera in recorded history. Yemen remains the worst humanitarian catastrophe on the planet today. This is what cholera and malnutrition look like. This is what the indirect effects of war look like. And part of our team was looking at the cholera preparedness, the treatment, uh, the epidemiology. But our job at Stanford was to look at what Saudi airstrikes and the blockade by Saudi and U.S. forces have been doing to the humanitarian situation, particularly the cholera, in Yemen. And what we found was things that look like this. This is a desalination plant on the west coast of Yemen. And there's heavy reliance on desalination because of where they're located. This is after a double-tap Saudi airstrike. Double-tap is they hit it, they'll assess what damage they've done, and then come back the next day to finish it off. This was not inadvertent collateral damage, that the Saudi airstrikes were attempting to destroy water infrastructure to put pressure on the civilian population that was considered to be supportive to the Houthi rebels backed by Iran. This is the destroyed Coca-Cola bottling plant that also bottled water in Yemen after a double-tag strike. And we found evidence for 74 or so 
airstrikes on water infrastructure, civilian water infrastructure in Yemen that we feel contributing to the cholera outbreak. People with disabilities are at enhanced risk in these situations, particularly the direct effects, but even more so the longer-term indirect effects. The literature on what happens to kids with disabilities, particularly developmental disabilities, is relatively non-existent. But we know that there are 93 million kids in the world with disabilities. We also know that they tend to have at least double the mortality rates from direct effects because of the difficulties in fleeing and seeking shelter in conflict situations. They're also more likely to be abandoned or separated, uh, which also holds uh, important implications for indirect effects. They lose meds, uh, assistive devices, and we know that they are at increased risk, particularly if they're girls of sexual assault. And again, this, uh, these are in the uh, curricula, but the data that we have just speak to enhanced vulnerabilities. And as a pediatrician working in areas with complex political environments and violence, um, this is a special concern for us, uh, particularly in areas affected by indirect effects. There are vulnerabilities, there are structural challenges because of their exclusion from the main mechanisms of protection, of escape, and provision that exists in these very complicated places to be. And also that their strengths are rarely uh, taken advantage of in preparedness, in, uh, in addressing the challenges that confront these communities when they are under stress. And one thing that does come through in many of the experiences, in the journals, and even in some of the analytic pieces, uh, is how children with disabilities, developmental disabilities, rally to provide leadership, to provide guidance for the communities in need. And it's something that remains an advantage, but that is rarely exploited in the real world. And to finish, I'm going to discuss children in a complex political environment driven by violence, and that is kids in detention on our southern border. I've had the privilege of visiting separated detained kids in detention centers in the U.S. border over the last six months. In two weeks, I'll be going to the detention center in Homestead. A more detailed discussion of uh, immigrant kids, the trauma, the implications long-term, Fernando will be talking about in a few minutes. I'm going to focus on the political dynamics here. That this is, these are the places that kids are held in the first week or so of their detention. They come through a system that was built for young adult males 
because it was primarily Mexican young adult males that were caught up in U.S. border detention facilities for decades. But now, 65% of the people who are detained on our U.S. southern border are families. 65%. And this has changed primarily since the separation policy was instituted by the Trump administration. I know it sounds paradoxical. I didn't make a mistake. But the big increase in kids coming across the border has occurred since the institution of the separation policy. Why? It's a complicated set of reasons that we can get into in the Q&A. But the reality is that the Border Patrol, the U.S. government, is unprepared to handle all these families uh, with children. They are no longer routinely separating young kids from a parent on the border. I said routinely. There's still separations taking place. But this is the tent city that was set up, Tornillo, Texas, outside of El Paso, to hold kids who were either unaccompanied when they came across or were separated from their families um, as soon as they came into detention. This is the Casa Padre facility. You can see it's an old Walmart in Brownsville, Texas, that holds about 1,500 kids. And I was there um, in late spring, early summer, about three weeks after the separation policy had been rescinded. But there were thousands of separated kids, some as small as six months of age, that were in detention or had been placed in foster care in cities across the country, Chicago, Minneapolis, New York City. And one child that I interviewed in Brownsville, David, um, and they're virtually all Guatemalan, they're all all Central Americans. Um, But this one little kid, David, just full disclosure, I've been working in Highland, Guatemala for 48 years now, since college, uh, freshman year of college. And David was 10 years of age, had been separated from his mom, had been in detention for about seven weeks, had no clue what was happening with this case. And I was there with lawyers, because they were allowed to go in because of court order, and I went with them. And the lawyer who was speaking to David first has to go through a script, a humane script that says, if you're not comfortable answering these questions, don't answer. If you want us to stop just say so. Obviously in Spanish, the lawyer spoke very good Spanish, going through the script. More legal, 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 legal. Kind, but pretty much legalese. Then she stopped and turned to David and said, "Um, how are you doing? David thought for a second and said, I miss my mommy. That these are little kids caught up in a system built for adult males. And we don't know how many kids were actually separated. But we do know that there have been two deaths of young children in U.S. detention facilities. Two little Guatemalan kids 
same kids that we would be caring for in their home villages in the highlands, indigenous highlands of Guatemala. Now, the specifics of what happened in these deaths, I can't speak to because I don't know all the details. But my strong view in knowing what I do know is that this was a failure that was systematic. That 200 people are apprehended by one Border Patrol agent on a border in a remote location, taken to a holding facility about an hour away. The holding facility is basically cells to process people. Then taken to a second processing center another few hours away. And they may be held in those facilities for days, up to a week, sometimes even longer, before the kids, and now with the parent, will be taken to either a holding facility for families. The vast majority are released um, and with a court, court date uh, to present for asylum seeking. These kids died during those, that first week during the first few days in that detention process, that the system makes it extremely dangerous for children in these settings, particularly if you get sick. And these were kids who were previously well, who died in detention, in custody, because of acute illness. Now, many people I've spoken to uh, around the country about these issues will have strong opinions. I will talk to strong Trump backers, anti-immigrant, hardcore. Virtually all will say that the separation policy was a mistake. That even the hardcore anti-immigrant group will say, look, this was a mistake. It should never have happened. But what you also hear all the time is that it's the parents' fault because they are irresponsible to put these kids into these risky situations with the risk of death, but also, look, you put the kid in this risky position, getting separated, it's irresponsible parenting that puts the kid at risk, not our policies. And there are irresponsible parents that try to game the system uh, who do put kids at risk. However, I'm going to show you this slide. Now, you're not going to be able to necessarily read all of this, but this is violent death rates by country for the most violent places on earth. Syria is the most violent place on earth, the highest death rates. But look what's number two, Salvador. Number three, Venezuela, Honduras, neck and neck. Then you get Afghanistan. Go down the list. Then you get Somalia. Then you get Yemen. And the area that I work in most, Guatemala, is up there on this list. In other words, the places with the greatest risk of violent death, other than Syria, are exactly where these people are leaving. That it would be irresponsible 
not to flee with your child if you were living in parts of these countries afflicted by primarily criminal violence that is at an epidemic proportion. These are dangerous places to live and to work. So when people suggest that placing a child in this situation is irresponsible, remember that slide. And remember what the implications for your child's well-being as they grow up into being adolescents and young adults, what their prospects are, what their promise would be in settings like Venezuela, settings like Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, precisely where all these families are coming from. And a recent report by the Inspector General basically said that we have no clue how many kids we separated from the parents on the border. And as most of you will remember, they even lost track of which kid belonged to which parent because they entered into two systems. And headquarters basically told the people responsible on the front line, do this now. People, in some ways, tried their best to have data systems that kept the connection together, but they were told, separate. They lost track of which kid belonged to which parent. Parents were deported. The kids were in New York, six months old, and they had no clue which kid was which and what parent they belonged to. Now, I told you I was going to talk about the worst and the best in the world. I mostly talk to you about the worst. That's my job, particularly for an audience like this of professionals and strong public advocates for children. But there is also best. The resilience of these kids and their families is overwhelming. And people ask, is this extremely depressing work to be working in war zones and areas of violence? And the answer, of course, is deeply troubling and distressing, sometimes terribly depressing. But it's also remarkably rewarding and invigorating. Um, I often say when I come back from my time in Guatemala, I'm there every couple of months, um, I come back exhausted and energized at the same time. And it's experiences like this child in uh, Iraq, um, who I met, that make it rewarding, invigorating, energizing. And then you meet people like Sister Norma in McAllen, Texas, who runs the Catholic Charities Respite Center. Basically, families are in lockup. They get released in mass. They walk two blocks, like a caravan, down the street with their little belongings to Sister Norma. And Sister Norma in the respite center will provide them with hot meals, guidance, because they all have bus tickets, because they're given bus tickets to go to wherever they're going to go, and the bus station is nearby. But before they do, they're given showers, food, clothing, and at times, medical care. Medical care provided by volunteers from around the country that come in for a week at a time and see a bunch of patients. But it may be an adult neurologist 
seeing six-year-olds who just came through, could be a month in detention, months coming up from Central America. This is what global health used to look like 20 or 30 years ago. And one of our efforts with colleagues at UCSF, at Baylor, uh, and uh, groups in New York, is to elevate the needs of these facilities caring for families leaving detention before they disperse around the country. And particularly once they get to wherever they're going to go, to have exquisitely high-quality pediatric follow-up. That this should not only rely on Sister Norma in Catholic Charities. We need to strengthen and places build an infrastructure of pediatric, social work, nursing, care that is responsive to the needs, responsive to the demands of these families. So in closing, my suggestion is that your expertise, the importance of what's going to be discussed in this conference, is directly relevant to the future of kids in war, both in public advocacy, but also because of your technical expertise and longstanding commitment to the well-being of children in complex social environments. My bottom line is that while I have talked about the worst in the world, child death, disabling conditions, morbidity, emotional trauma, that's really very hard for all of us to fathom. It is also the domain of compassionate care, of a basic humanity in the face of dramatic horrors of war. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.